0: Hi, I'm John O'Neill, the author of The Dancer and the Devil. You're listening to A Call to Rights with Steve Tate.
1: And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the exciting show that you tell us you like so much. For well over 15 years, the Call to Rights radio show has been here Talking with you, not at you, about the great subject matter of the Bill of Rights, our Constitution, our Second Amendment, and so many of the other things that are happening in the world today. The main theme of the radio show has and always will continue to be this. In our opinion, always refuse to be a victim. A victim is simply someone with no options. Always fight back legally and responsibly. As many of you know out there, for the last 15 years, we've been, of course, searching the Internet and searching the world for the best authors in these particular subject realms, and a regular contributor, that is, as we interview so many of the great Regnery people who write their interesting books Today, without exception, a very special guest and a special book, the book entitled The Dancer and the Devil, Stalin, Pavlova, and the Road to the Great Pandemic. This book, co-written by John E. O'Neill and Sarah C. Wynn, but first, a brief introduction of our special guest, John E. O'Neill. Johnny O'Neill is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, book Unfit for Command with Sarah C. Wynn. Amazon number three bestseller, The Fisherman's Tomb. He graduated from the United States Naval Academy in 1967 and after decorated service in Vietnam, finished as the, the top graduate of the University of Texas School of Law. <coughs> Following a clerkship with Chief Justice William Rehnquist of the United States Supreme Court, O'Neill successfully tried several hundred cases, arbitrations including then representation for the People's Republic of China in their first U.S. litigation. He declined any further representation of the PRC after the massacre at Tiananmen Square, where many innocent people died or disappeared. But a little bit about the book before we introduce our special guest. Communism must kill what it cannot control. So for a century, it has killed artists, writers, musicians, and even dancers. It kills them secretly, using bioweapons and poison to escape accountability. Among its victims was Anna Pavlova, history's greatest dancer, who was said to have a God given talent and wings and feet that never touched the ground. But she defied Stalin, and for that she had to die. Her sudden death in Paris in 1931 was a mystery until now. And now, as we introduce our very special guest, author Johnny O'Neill, to the Cult of Rights show. Mr. O'Neill, welcome, and thank you for your
0: time. Thank you very much, Steve. It's a great honor to be on your show.
1: Well, you know, sir, I think we have not done this uh, for the first time today. I do think if I go back in my time machine, I do think there was an opportunity where we might have interviewed you uh, for unfit for command. So welcome back, sir. It's been a long time.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's, it's good to be back.
1: Well, what's interesting about this book, as I've mentioned, sir, to all of our
0: uh, listeners out there, we obviously love the uh,
1: people of Regnery and Regnery History. But I want to go back into time with you on this, because I find it so fascinating. And I must be honest with you in the audience, I wasn't really aware of Anna Pavlova. But when I looked at the title of this book, I said, wow, here's something very interesting, because it's talking about the past, and it's also talking about what everybody on this planet should be concerned about as we've been going through this great pandemic. So tell us the impetus for wanting to write this book, and uh, maybe some of your thoughts about uh, how this all came together. We're fascinated to hear the story.
0: Well, you know, it's often said that the past is the parent of the future, and also that uh, he who doesn't know history is doomed to repeat it. And that yes. actually fundamentally is what the book is about. We began the book, Sarah um, Wynn and I, uh, we began the book because there were so many unexplained deaths occurring in Europe, and uh, we learned about Stalin's Laboratory One about the gang he had called the Yasha Gang in Paris, whose job was to poison people with primarily with anthrax. So they would um, appear to have pneumonia and actually have been poisoned with anthrax, which was in those days undetect- an undetectable bioweapon. Uh, we came to learn that Stalin started a whole series of bioweapon laboratories at a place called Saratov and other places. In fact, he himself almost died. Of the plague. He was almost exposed to nomadic plague in 1939 when he summoned the head of one of the laboratories back, and it turned out the guy was infected. Uh, continuing ahead, we learned that the Soviet Union had run a huge bioweapons program, as accounted uh, in a book called Biohazards, written by a man named uh, Albeck, who was the number two guy in the Soviet bioweapons program and that they had dealt in pneumonic plague, anthrax, uh, smallpox, and so on, with vast reserves of these available for use and, and weaponizing and spending more money on it than they were spending on nuclear weapons. And with as many as 60,000 different people, engineers, and all working on the program and whole islands in the in the Sea of Aral and, and elsewhere devoted to it, we learned that those uh, didn't, they were discontinued, by uh, Yeltsin, but then recontinued tremendously by Putin, and of course we knew about poisoning after poisoning by Putin. And when COVID-19 happened uh, and came out of Wuhan, China, we knew instantly what it was likely, what it was going to be, and we knew that because we knew that the Russian bio labs had all gone into China in the Stalin period, and that China itself. Had a huge bioweapons program with more than 15 bioweapons, bio labs, bioweapons labs. I'm not talking about bio labs that are, are mm-hmm. innocuous and have good purposes. I'm talking about wep- uh, labs that actually exist to weaponize and use viruses and bacteria to harm people. And the largest of these is in Wuhan, China. It's the Chinese. Crazy. It's the bioweapons lab in in Wuhan, China. And so, as soon as we saw COVID-19, we had a strong suspicion that it was a leak from that lab because that's exactly when it appeared. The more we learned about it, the more obvious it was that that's exactly what had happened. we were perplexed mm-hmm. by the, uh, the, in, the unwillingness of particularly Anthony Fauci to acknowledge it and his, his effort to try and suppress the truth. And of course why that was happening has only become apparent recently. Well this is fascinating and ladies and gentlemen, if you're just tuning into the this particular Call to right
1: show today with me, Steve Cates. I just want to thank our very special guest at the time here, John E. O'Neill. He is co author along with Sarah C. Wynne of this great Regnery history book that we definitely recommend, ladies and gentlemen. Learn about history because as you've mentioned, sir, if you keep repeating history you'll never learn how to fix it. And obviously I think that's a problem. The world needs Answer and the Devil, Stalin, Pavlova and the Road to the Pandemic, is the book we're talking about. But Mr. O'Neill, if I may go back a little bit, I'm just honored to have you here today. You're a Naval Academy graduate, if I'm correct. Your grandfather also taught at the U.S. Naval Academy, and you're clerking with Justice William Rehnquist. That's fascinating. That's one justice that I would love to have met, being here in Phoenix. I understand he also practiced law here for for some time. Am I correct?
0: And he loved Phoenix. uh... He always wanted to go. His dream was always to go back to Phoenix. Uh, He stayed in Washington simply because of a sense of duty. He was a wonderful friend to men, as as well as his wife, to me and my family, and and a wonderful mentor, and a truly great, selfless man. Uh, He was the last World War II veteran, actually, to have a big place in in the U.S. government. Um, And he stuck on in Washington, hating being there. Um, Wow simply because he thought it was his duty to do that. If he had had his brothers, he would have been right back where you are a long time before his death in 2006.
1: Well, and if I understand, I don't want to go too far off subject matter, but he was very much opposed to the Roe versus Wade as it was what, then put out in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So very timely as we're talking about what's happened with the Supreme Court here. But it must have been such an honor to uh, to work around a, a great what? He was more of a Federalist, I guess, than a Tenth Amendment supporter. Is that pretty much accurate?
0: He was, Steve. I clerked for him the, right after the Roe versus Wade decision came down, mm. in which uh, he and Justice Byron White both dissented. Um, not only them, but actually everybody was perplexed by the decision, which seemed to be based much more on medicine than on law. And, of course, oh. it was based on the on the medicine of all that, you know, so long ago that, that said, look, a, a fetus couldn't survive until six, seven, eight months out of the out of the uh, womb. I have two grandchildren who were born at four and a half months. And I guess they wow. would have had their heads snapped off in some of the country. But um, that was always the weakness of it. And he recognized that from the beginning, that it had no foundation in the Constitution at all, that it was uh, simply a... Uh, decision based on, on medicine by uh, Harry Blackman, who had been general counsel of the Mayo Clinic and had wonderful knowledge of then-medicine and very little knowledge of constitutional law.
1: Well, sir, it would be an honor to talk about these subjects in this, uh, those particular areas of, of your expertise, but I'd like to get back to the book here, The Dancer and the Devil's Stalin, Bavlova on the Road to the Great Pandemic. Describe to this audience, because I learned so much when I read this book. And as I mentioned to you, sir, off air, I do my very best to read the books and not just the notes, because I think it's so important when we spend time for people like yourself and ask for their time, that we do our homework as as hosts and people like ourselves in the media. And unfortunately, and not to put me on a pedestal, but I don't think a lot of people do that. But having said that, Talk about the significance of Ballerina Anna Pavlova, because I think for many people who don't know that, they'll learn all the details when they do purchase the book. But describe her the significance of her. She was not just here in the United States and in England on the stage, but what? on the grand world stage and, and
0: such a great uh, ballerina.: She was the, uh, when you think of all the great ballets of history. Uh she was she was foundational to almost all of them. She danced with the Russian Imperial Ballet. Uh, she began really young at fourteen or fifteen, and she walked in. She was rejected the first time. She walked back in, and Marius Petipa, who's the father of most modern ballet, of of uh, most Russian ballet, of Swan Lake and of, of Pharaoh's Daughter, and and. Uh, the Nutcracker. He actually saw her dance and he said that it was the dream. He was by that time in his 80s, and he said this was the dream of every ancient ballet master to actually see someone like that dance. She had an amazing ability to communicate emotion with her arms and with her entire body. Um, and so she, unlike the great athletic dancers who could perform, you know uh, great athletic feats, That wasn't her strong point. Her strong point was the ability to convey incredible emotion when combined with music so that people felt when she her her signature dance was called the dying swan. And when it was the story of the last minutes of a swan, uh, the Greeks always said that in its very last minutes, swans could speak for the very first time. And so when she danced that piece, which is about four minutes, people thought that they were looking at the dividing line between life and death, and to some a great tragedy, and to others, resurrection. And so she portrays a swan actually slowly dying. And, uh, of course, it's performed over and over again all over the world. These days, um, more than 42 ballerinas performed it about a month ago in places as far away as Peking and Moscow. And she herself danced that single dance over 4,000 times. So she was foundational to all ballet and all ballet in the world. She was the greatest dancer of all time.
1: Oh, absolutely, and that's why I'm saying it's important for people to read all of the story that we have here, containing the dancer and the devil, Stalin, Pavlova, and the road to the pandemic, the great pandemic here, a regnery history book. But let's go to a darker side here. Obviously, the beauty of Anna Pavlova is uh, we're just touching the surface as you've described here, the Dying Swan and other performances in the world of ballet. But let's talk about the other side of the equation. Joseph Stalin. I don't think many people really understand, really, how simply evil this individual uh, is in history. And a little bit of background on him, Mr. O'Neill, if you would. If I'm correct, I'm reading that his own mother at one time wanted him to go into the priesthood, but I think that was a diametric type situation. That would be like the two different polarities. Describe this Joseph Stalin, because I don't think people really know how evil and how many people he's alleged to have been responsible for murdering and
0: killing. Well, he began, um, as the, and I think it was important to him, he was the son of a, of a drunken shoemaker who would beat him up all the time and abuse him. And who thought that he wasn't actually his son. He thought that the mother had had an affair with somebody else rightly or wrongly. Uh, his right. mother always, um, uh, dream that he'd someday become a priest, and she actually got him into the seminary, and for a time, he did okay, and then he turned to a new religion. His new religion was Marxism, and from that time on, he was, a, he was strictly a Marxist. His life changed dramatically in 1906 when his wife, named Kiki, died, and uh, when Kiki died, uh, he told everyone that from that moment on, he had no feeling for humanity, that he, had, he would have no feeling for them. He became a double agent, sometimes a Bolshevik planning bombings and bank robberies, and other times a secret agent for the police. Um, he attached himself to Lenin. Um, Lenin's secretary hated him, a man named Suvorov, and then Suvorov suddenly died, as you can guess, of lung problems. Yes. Um, and Stalin used his position uh, with Lenin, to establish himself in the end as the absolute dictator of, of uh, Russia he took joy in the actual misery and suffering of other human beings so that at his birthday Horrible. parties he would actually have uh, people perform as a comedy the death of the people who had once been his friends how they begged for life and then were shot in the head or, or tortured to death and so he took Horrible. joy in that in a in a very strange way and um, you don't have to believe in the devil, uh, although I do, to believe he was absolutely demonic in uh, in his treatment of people. He, believe, he probably killed, in the Ukraine alone, he killed 8 million. He probably it's was horrible. responsible for a total of much more than 20 million human beings dying. Well, Mr.
1: O'Neill, in your book, you have a quote here, and if you don't mind me sharing this uh, with the audience here, Joseph Stalin meets Winston Churchill in 1943 in the Tehran Conference, and I quote, he says, God is on your side. Is he a conservative? The devil's on my side. He's a good communist. End quote. I mean, (laughs) I don't don't even imagine how Winston Churchill, what he might have said back, is there any response that Winston, Winston Churchill gave that we know from history? Because that's pretty demonic and pretty powerful stuff from the dark side.
0: Well, uh, he was proposing shooting a million Germans as soon as uh, Germany was conquered, and Churchill said we couldn't, and that's how the remark came about. Um, perhaps something that relates to that is Stalin, Stalin himself was poisoned in the end uh, out of that same poison lab that's described by his underling, Beria. As he died, his, his daughter was right there. And she said that uh, Stalin came suddenly back to life after being unconscious and began waving his hands and his arms as if, in his daughter's words, the angel of death was coming to pick him up. And uh, so maybe Stalin got got to go home.
1: So what the audience needs to know is that the concept that we're talking about, bioweapons, this is not something in the modern age. I mean, we'll continue, of course with the short interview today, and I appreciate your time again, sir. But the whole story of these bioweapons, I mean, the end of Anna Pavlova, it is, what, fairly well documented, and in your opinion, that this was something as a personal, what, a personal vendetta against uh, the the ballerina. Why why did he despise her so much? I mean, it it seems to be coming through the book that she obviously didn't want to become a Marxist, and she was a free person. But tell us the story about the He is what? Directly linked to the fact that uh, she was
0: poisoned then. Well, uh, she she was summoned back to Russia and wouldn't come back to Russia. She happened to be out of Russia when the revolution occurred in 1917. And so she danced all over the world. And, of course, what she was dancing was Swan Lake and all the Uh, the great Russian ballets, the great imperial ballets of Russia. So that was an affront to Stalin. She wouldn't come home in uh, 1927 when he summoned her home. Um, he actually declared her an enemy of the Soviet people in 1929 and seized her, um, actually seized the foundation she had established. She danced um, and provided great charity for the white Russians who were all in uh, Paris and danced for the, the last Romanov pretender. In 1930, Stalin got his uh, mistress, a woman named Anna Kolontai. Uh, to go to various capitals in Europe to try and prevent, diplomatically, her from even dancing. And so her friends, that is, Pavlova's friends, said, please come to Hollywood and make a movie, and there were great offers, and she had great friends there, and she wouldn't. And so in 1931, she determined that she would launch a tour of Europe that would end up on the borders of Russia, in in, uh, Poland. And on the very first... uh, day of that tour she left the Ritz Hotel in Paris uh, climbed on a train and on the train she, she her lungs began to fill up with water and, and she began to die and she oh. told everyone she had been poisoned in Paris everyone laughed and didn't, they didn't laugh but they thought it couldn't possibly be true and they tried to treat yeah. her in every possible way and no one could um, no one could figure out what was wrong with her because it didn't—it it looked like pneumonia, but she didn't seem to have pneumonia. Of course, it was anthrax, really, although the pathology of the time couldn't determine that. Uh, and she, uh, for her company to go forward, and the very next night, the first night of her tour in the Hague, they did go forward, and they danced, and on the spot she was supposed to be, they simply shined a light on the stage, and they said, look... Uh, there's no one in the world who can be an understudy for Anna Pavlova. In Hollywood, in 1932, her friends commemorated her with a movie called The Grand Hotel, which won the Oscar as the best movie of the year. Oh, it was yeah, their w- yeah. way of remembering Anna yeah. Pavlova. What a story.
1: Bruno. He's your numero uno. Yeah, if you're just joining us, ladies and gentlemen, we want to thank our very special guest again, John E. O'Neill. He's co authored with Sarah C. Wynn. A great Regnery history book. If you're fascinated by what's happening today, with, of course, the COVID 19 and where it came from and so more, there's a long lineage in this particular book that talks about this isn't just the first time that this has been done and what is that creation of a pandemic in the author's opinion. These are made and manufactured in bioweapons laboratories. The Dancer and the Devil, Stalin, Pavlova, and the Road to the Great Pandemic is what we're talking about today. But it's so horrible. If you look at the Lubyanka prison and all the people, the poison dwarf that you go into, all these sadistic people. I mean, this is just the stuff of the devil, and it needs to be talked about. But let's go right to the heart of the core here. What are bioweapons, if you can just identify them, for people who have maybe no clue
0: what we're really talking about? Well, bioweapons are the use of organic uh, organisms, virus and and bacteria, to kill people or to debilitate them. Um, Bioweapons, the purpose of them could be to make everybody sort of sick or it could be to actually kill everyone. And they were used through throwing, you know, um, smallpox-infected clothing and stuff on a small scale at various times in history. But they became, became really big in 1939 in Russia in, and in the 1930s when Stalin conceived of them as a huge source of, of, of weaponry. And so he began at Saratov what he called the Anthrax Plague Project. And the purpose of the Anthrax Plague Project was to weaponize anthrax and uh, plague, mnemonic plagues, that these could be used as, as weapons. In war, and there are journals of that project which I recommend reading, and they're they're kind of amazing when you read them. Yes. In 1979, at a place called Kottenberg in the Urals, it leaked anthrax leaked, and over a thousand people died. And the, the people who worked on the project in the journals laugh about, boy, wasn't it amazing how they made us kill all the dogs and pretended that it came from the dog. Um, Uh So, uh, in the history of the Soviet bioweapons program, there were leaks, the the one at uh, Saratov, another one in Kiev in 1972, and another one in Kottenberg in 1979. These bioweapons, that is the use of uh, uh, diseases, um, which which sometimes are also agricultural diseases, like uh, African swine virus and so on, that actually spread... To, uh China uh, China was a victim of bioweapons used by the Japanese in Shanghai in World War II and so they became very interested in them and they became uh, very aggressive in actually promoting and and studying them initially for defensive purposes but later uh, as offensive weapons and so they had uh, as the book details in the 19, in 1977, They were weaponizing a flu virus, not too much different than COVID-19. And as part of the weaponization of the project, they had to develop vaccines. On the course of developing vaccines with their Army troops, the People's Liberation Army, it actually leaked out. And so the world, millions of people died from the 1977 virus. Not nearly so many as COVID-19, but a fair number. I remember getting it. And no, and they claim we know nothing about it. No, it was only in 1994 when the head of their virology program confessed that that's what had happened. That the world learned that's where the 1977 virus came from. And so, China also has leaked bioweapons. Um, the creation of diseases, um, you know, is a dirty business until oh, yeah. the creation of what was called the CRISPR tool. You had to take an existing virus like um, smallpox or whatever and find the most virulent Mm -hmm. form of it. But with the CRISPR tool actually allows man to edit the virus itself for the very first time in human history, to actually edit germs, viruses, bacteria, and genes. And so with the creation of the CRISPR tool, it became possible to create completely new viruses that that man had never seen at all. And there were idiotic Mm -hmm. attempts in the United States through something called enhancement to actually, in laboratories, enhance viruses so that they would spread more quickly among laboratory rats and so on, not for weapon purposes, but to try and figure out how to combat them. But still stupid, because it ignored the possibility of of viruses leaking in China. Yes, Mr. O'Neill, you go so much here. Right. And I'd like to, in a
1: few moments that we have left here, and again, I'd love to do this at another time with you, if you'd be so kind to go into a little bit more detail. But in this particular interview, just to get people's appetites wet for an understanding about how the whole story of bioweapons is not just something brand new, and also the connection that Stalin and Pavlova, as you describe here, the Dancer and the Devil, the title of the book, The Road to the Great Pandemic. If I may ask you straight up, you obviously have in your book, and you also have a vast amount of information and evidence. What evidence can you then give this audience in this short interview about uh, the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party, being complicit in the what? In the development and possible spreading of this COVID-19, this horrible virus that's caused the world to suffer tremendously.
0: COVID-19 is a combination of two things. The virus is a common, 96.2% of it comes from a horseshoe bat Located in the Himalayas, everyone agrees to that. It was That horseshoe bat was brought from the Himalayas 1,100 miles to Wuhan, China, in 2015. The last 3.8% has never been found naturally anywhere in the world in, in, in combination with the virus. Fauci and the Chinese communists have claimed that there was some kind of mutation of a bat that came from, they don't know where, and it got in a wet market, they're at Wuhan, and and somebody must have chomped down on it, but no one has ever been able to find that, that combination animal. Right. The virus first appeared immediately outside of the, the virology lab in Wuhan and very close to the military bioweapons lab in Wuhan, China. The, the guy that discovered it, he died quickly and very mysteriously all the, the early samples of it were all destroyed on orders of the Chinese military as soon as um, it, it began to become public. The the uh, very next piece of evidence that came out, as I've outlined, is you can't find this virus anywhere in the world. The uh, NIH and Fauci have spent now millions and millions of dollars scouring the world trying to find naturally COVID 19 virus. It doesn't exist, uh, Steve. They can't find it anywhere. It's a big snipe hunt for a non existent deal that came directly out of a laboratory. Yep. The next important piece of evidence, of course, are, is the Ch- defecting Chinese two defectors from China who said, yes, we worked on the CRISPR tool to alter viruses. There's a great deal of evidence of that virus being directly in the Wuhan laboratory and of weaponization of viruses in Wuhan. The final piece of evidence that's very important is in an article by Jeffrey Sack recently, and every American should look at this article. He's a doctor, and he located a grant proposal made by our NIH together with the Wuhan lab in 2018 to actually put the hook that makes the COVID-19 virus so lethal to a COVID virus. It was denied as illegal under U.S. law. A year later, the very same thing appeared in Wuhan, China, with the Wuhan lab. And so there's great suspicion that we idiotically provided the uh, technology um, that then was turned around and used for military purposes, and that that is the reason why the NIH has concealed what has actually happened now to 18 million human beings.
1: That's amazing. This is a fascinating story, Mr. O'Neill, and I wish we had much more time to discuss it. But I wanted to now move on to Russia. Vladimir Putin and this horrific attack on the independence or the freedoms of the Ukrainian people. I don't know if we're really getting the real story, but Russia also has a vast bioweapons program, as we've been talking about way back in the time with Joseph Stalin. But am I correct? There's also been the poisoning with what, a substance called polonium, where this is not the first time that the Russians have actually used
0: bioweapons, and, you know, a small no, amount no, uh, of the uh, colonium that, would kill you in a short time. Is that correct? Exactly right. Uh, there, the book recounts any number. For example, the great humanitarian Wallenberg was actually used as a as a test. He was killed as a test animal inhumanely in the in laboratory one in Moscow. Um, the great writer Gorky was poisoned in the 1938 show trial. The doctors said, "Oh, yeah, we poisoned these people," and in some cases with bioweapons. And so there were was actual testimony that they had done this, although the West didn't realize the significance of it. Of course, uh, these were called so-called liternoi killings. Um, yeah. A KGB agent said, "Any fool." Can murder someone, but it takes a true artist to stage a natural death or to stage a suicide. His name was Kravitsky, and, and he himself was murdered shortly after that. Um, and there were a whole series of these so called literary killings in the Soviet period and in the Stalin period. And of course, there have been an entire sequence of them under Putin, one after another after another recently. Uh, eight different uh, Russian oil and gas officials have supposedly committed suicide. Uh, these were people that were disaffected with Putin. The last three have supposedly killed their entire families while they were committing suicide. In the last case, a family called the Prentinovich Brent- Supposedly, ch- the husband chopped up his little daughter and his wife and then hung himself. Oh. Of course, he never did that, Steve. These were murders oh. by uh, Putin, deniable murders that, that said to everybody in Russia, if you oppose me, I'll, I'll kill not only you, but I'll kill your wife and I'll kill your little kids.
1: Oh, my God. That's horrible. But the book, of course, is so, it goes into so much detail. This is a must read. It goes to the top of our culture Rights bookshelf, of course. The book as we conclude this interview one more time and thank our author here, John E. O'Neill, author of many books, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just hoping, John, that we might be able to do this in a more extended version at your convenience sometime. If that's okay by you, that's certainly great. I'd very much love to, to Steve. Absolutely. Well, that concludes an exciting edition, ladies and gentlemen, as we continue well past 15 years with the radio show that you're well accustomed to the Cold to Rights radio show, talking about our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, our Second Amendment, and of course, Our main theme always is this, always remember, always refuse to be a victim. A victim is simply someone with no options. Always fight back legally and responsibly. Education is a great tool to help set us free. Thank you, sir, for joining us on the Call to Rights program. If you'd be kind enough to stay on the line with us as we go to the hard break at the bottom of the hour. That concludes this exciting edition, as I mentioned before, our very special guest, John E. O'Neill. He is co-author with Sarah C. Wynn of a must-read book, here it is again, ladies and gentlemen, Regnery History of the Dancer and the Devil, Colin Puplova. Thank you, Mr. O'Neill, for your time. Thank you.